You are listening to the Embassy Church Podcast, and here is today's message. You know, the previous song that uh, we sang, there was the uh, line in there that said, God, you've rescued me, so I will stand and sing, for I am a child of God. You know, there is no orphans in here. In the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as an orphan, for we are his children. We're his sons and his daughters. We're bought with a price. We are loved without measure, and we are given promises that exceed our wildest dreams. God is truly amazing, and the kingdom that he has brought us into is something that we continue day by day and for eternity, I believe, that we'll continue to come to a better understanding. We will never, ever grasp the true greatness, the glory of God, that that'll be a journey that will span not just this life, but into all eternity. So God, we thank you that we're your children. You know, the Apostle John, he used to talk in terms of uh, in numerous places in the Gospel of John, he would say, the disciple whom Jesus loved And you know, honestly, that used to uh, irritate me sometimes because I thought, what gives you the right to say that in light of all the other disciples? But you know, the truth for John was the same truth for Peter and all of the other disciples. It's the same truth for each and every one of us that we are the one that our Savior loves. We are the one. It was for us he died, us individually, not just corporately as a group, but individually. He knows us. He knows our name. He knows our destiny. He's counted the hairs on our head. He knows us intimately. So we, I, you, we are the ones whom Jesus loves. And thank God for that. Thank God for that. Hallelujah, hallelujah. All right, you may be seated. Uh, Worship team, thank you so much. That was awesome. How's everybody today? I see darkness out here. (laughs) So I know you're out there. So welcome to the service. Uh, second Sunday back in church, so it's awesome. Awesome to see your faces. Awesome to join together again, to have that connection and community coming together because that's truly what God wants. He wants to, he wants to do something in our lives individually, but he also wants to do something through us corporately. And both are very significant. And uh, for that reason, he has grafted us in to the body of Christ. We're not on our own. We're not out on a limb doing our own thing. He ties us in so that we can be a part of the kingdom that he is building. You know, I love what Megan is preaching and last week she preached on um, the two things that I really keyed in on were the connection and the community. And... uh, from Nehemiah there, that as the people of God, as the children of Israel came together under Nehemiah's guidance, 
and uh, they adhered to his instructions as he was instructed by God and they stood they built the wall I think the really amazing thing is is that as they were building the wall God was building them into a people that was mighty that it wasn't just about the wall but God used them together as they built the wall to build each and every one of them into somebody that they could never have become by themselves. And that's the value of connection and that's the value of community. Because I've heard people say many times, you know, oh, my spiritual life is a private thing. You know, I don't want to share it with anybody. But you know, God never designed or intended that. What if Jesus had come and he'd had that same philosophy? Oh, my relationship with God is a personal, private thing. I don't want to share that with you. Uh, who would Jesus be to us then? We would never have come to know him, not just as the son of God, but, you know, as our elder brother, really. Because he's the one, by his blood, his shed blood, that we've been adopted into the family of God. That he's given us a destiny. That what God has promised to him, he has promised to us which is pretty cool. Amen? All right. So today I'm going to talk about something. <laughs> it's good, eh? I'm not just going to ramble. I'm not going to be like Adam Q and just go down a road that I'm not sure where it's going to end up. <laughs> Although that, has, that happens to all of us, I know. <laughs> What was the point of that? I forget. <laughs> so there is a point, and uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a preview. Part of what Megan preached last week, uh, you know, I've heard her say that. I've heard other men of God say that. And, uh, you know, we can listen to messages, and, and sometimes what we'll get out of a message is maybe one word, two words, three words. Um, does God ever expect us to remember the whole thing? Uh, I don't think so, because that's why he gave us pens, paper, podcasts, you know, things like that. Uh, maybe some of you are gifted with that kind of memory, but I know I'm not. But there are things usually out of each message that I'll hear that just really stand out. And uh, she said three words last week that really just popped out at me. And the words were, be authentically you. Be authentically you. And that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about today, is to be authentically you. Because we live in a day and a time, and you know what? Every day and time is the same. The people who are living today are going through pressures of life. The people who lived 100 years ago were going through pressures of life. And to them, it was as significant as what we are going through today. No generation is exempt. No generation gets a free pass. And wow, this was easy. Um, every generation has its trials and tribulations that they've got to walk through and endure. And that's part of the history that we have as Christians, is we can look back and we can see the history. We can see how... We can see the roots that we come from. And they're good roots. They're strong roots. So, 
The way I'm going to start this off is talk a little bit about something that's prevalent in society today. And it's maybe a word you've heard, and maybe it's not, but I'll define it so that it makes more sense. But the word is this, narcissism. <laughs> Anybody ever heard that word, narcissism? And our culture is woven tightly with narcissism. What is narcissism? Well, narcissism is extremely, one of the definitions is extremely self-centered with an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Um, in other words, the I is more important than the we. I don't feel like doing this. I don't want to. Um, and so we put ourselves above the group, whether it's our family, whether it's our community. Um, I could say that about preaching. I don't want to because this makes me uncomfortable. And I could use that and say, well, it makes me uncomfortable, so therefore I must not have to do it. Well, you know, a lot of things in the kingdom of God as you grow and mature will make you uncomfortable. And if you don't like it, then you're going to stay that little kid drinking milk that the Bible calls immature and infantile. Okay? Because you will never grow up into the things that God wants you to attain to. And it's just like those of us who are, um, we've had families, uh, we all come from a family, but if you've had families, you've had children, um, and you know what? I, I'm a teacher in a school, and I've asked my kids this. Um, would you want to stay a baby forever? Somebody looking after you, nurturing you, cuddling you, feeding you, changing you. I mean, how much better does it get? <laughs> you don't have to do anything. You just lay there. How many would be happy doing that? None of us. Part of the Part of the joy of being birthed is that you work towards maturity and you become your own person with your own giftings and your own callings. And whether you're a Christian or not, you want to see yourself developed in those things. Another definition is displaying or marked by excessive concern with own physical appearance, well-being, position, etc., you know, I need more money, I need a bigger house, I need a better car, I need more clothes in my closet, I need a better job, I need a better position, I need, I need, I need. So an excessive concern about oneself. I can also be marked by or characteristic of an excessive admiration or infatuation with oneself. Nobody can say it like I can say it. They did a good try, but, but, you know, if I'd been able to do it, man, I would have knocked that thing out of the park. And so although you give some credit to others, you always exalt yourself and put yourself in a position, you know. And if you fail, then it's somebody else's fault. It's your fault that I failed. So some synonyms for narcissism are egotistical, self-absorbed, self-centered, self-concerned, 
self-loving, self-obsessed, self-seeking, self-serving, selfish. Wow. So if you don't know narcissism, I'll guarantee you, you've heard some of these other ones. And if you've ever met somebody that is egotistical, self-absorbed, self-important, self-centered, they're not always the most pleasant people to be around because if the conversation doesn't center on them, then there's not much to talk about really. And in the kingdom of God, things are supposed to be different. And the kingdom that we're a part of, the kingdom of God, we are supposed to be different. So some antonyms. So a little bit of an English lesson. Synonyms are words that have similar meanings. Um, antonyms are those that are exact opposite to the words. So words, a couple of words that are antonyms to narcissism or egotistical or self-absorbent are selfless or unselfish. So to me, that sounds like God. Selfless, unselfish. And I believe that's what he's called us to be a part of. But, you know, life... I'm going to read you a verse here from 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. And it's interesting because this was written almost 2,000 years ago. And uh, I think this is the one I want. So 2 Timothy 3.1 was written by Paul and it was written around uh, AD 64 or 65 is what is said. It's what the uh, historians and the Bible scholars believe. So why would I say that? Well, you know, it was around this time that uh, Nero was emperor of Rome. And uh, in July of 64 AD, Rome burnt. And historically, it was one of the most extensive destructive fires that is on record. And uh, the reason for, or the cause of the fire, many attribute to Nero himself because he wanted to rebuild much of Rome in the image of him. So he wanted to destroy what was there and he wanted to create buildings and things that would honor him and give him a legacy that would go beyond his years into the future. And so this is where Paul is writing from. This is the generation that he grew up in. And the fire was used by Nero and do you know who he blamed the fire on? He blamed it on the Christians, on a new sect or religion that was starting up in Rome and was deemed to be very dangerous and very counterproductive to the Roman society. And those were the Christians. And so Nero actually blamed this on the, pers er, on the Christians and there was tremendous persecution of the Christians during this time. But this is what Paul wrote. He wrote, But you need to be aware that in the final days, the culture of society will become extremely fierce and difficult for the people of God. Kind of sounds like today as well. But culture, the culture of society is not something that embraces Christianity. It doesn't embrace what you and I believe. 
it is actually fiercely opposed against it. And so he says, he warns us that in the final days, the culture of society will become extremely fierce and difficult for the people of God. People will be self-centered lovers of themselves. Oh, sounds like narcissism. And they will be obsessed with money. They will ignore their own families. They will be ungrateful and they will be ungodly. And so there's good people out there. There's good people in here. But society as a whole is corrupt. And the corruption that runs through it is a selfish corruption that manifests in many different ways. But it is opposed to what God would have us be like and how we would conduct ourselves in His kingdom. And so much of the struggle that we go up against is against this culture. And you know, there's culture in the church as well. Because I'm going to read out of Romans chapter 12. And verses 2, 3, and 4. So Paul, again, is writing here. And he's talking to the church in Rome. And he's saying, stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you. But be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. God wants to get at how we think. How we think will transform us. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in His guise, in His eyes. God has given me grace to speak a warning about pride. So who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to the church. I would ask each of you to be emptied of self-importance and not create a false image of your importance. Instead, honestly assess your worth by using your God-given faith as the standard of measurement. And then you will see your true value with appropriate self-esteem. And I believe that is being authentically you. When we can look at ourselves, when we can honestly assess our worth by using our God-given faith as a standard of measurement, not man's ideas as to what we should measure up to. But our God-given faith, according to trust in Him, His Word, then we will see our true value with appropriate self-esteem. And that is the authentic you. That's the you that God wants to get to. That's the you that He wants to get to the surface and show everybody else. God wants to show off the authentic you. And you need to step out of the way, and when you do, and let God do the work in your life, then He can show off who you are way better than you ever could. 
Verse 4, in the human body there are many parts and organs, each with a unique function. And so it is in the body of Christ. For though we are many, we've been mingled together into one body. This means that we are all vitally joined to one another, with each contributing to the others. Connectedness and community. The body is community. And within the body, there has to be connectedness within, or the body will suffer. A body that has a part of it that has become prideful, arrogant, self-important over the rest of the body, that body is not a healthy body. And in the natural, we would say that body suffers from something like cancer. Because that cancer will grow and it will take over the rest of the body at the expense of itself. Because it will ultimately die. But it doesn't care. As long as it's growing, it will, it will not be concerned about the well-being of the rest of the body. So God wants us to be knit together, to be healthy and productive within the body. And to do that, as verse 3 says, you know, there's that warning about pride. Because it's not about me and the body, it's about the body. And it's about what I bring to the body. So the church has culture. Titus 1 verse 14 says this, Instruct them not to pay attention to any Jewish myths or follow the teaching of those who reject the truth. So Paul is saying, don't pay attention to Jewish myths. So in other words, they were things that were believed, but actually were non-issues in the kingdom of God or the gospel. They were myths. They were falsehoods. Does the church today have myths? I think so. <laughs> uh, I know the church, when I grew up, had myths. Uh, one of the myths was that miracles and speaking in tongues and things like that had passed away when the apostles passed away. That it was no longer relevant to today's society. That's a myth. That's an untruth. And if you go there, it will hinder your growth and development in the kingdom. You know, there was a time when I know um, long hair. <laughs> I grew up in the generation as well when the, you know, the rebellion, the rock music came out, the hippie movement, all of that. And one of the, one of the visible symbols of all of that was the guys let their hair grow long. And man, that was my passion. <laughs> but you know what? That was not my parents' passion. And I fought my parents on it because from their perspective, that was a sign of rebellion. And you know what? Maybe it was. But does it have to be? It doesn't have to be. 
I was reading a definition of culture and it says this, culture really is the characteristics and knowledge of a particular group of people encompassing language, how we talk, religion, what we believe, cuisine, what we eat, social habits, what we deem acceptable, non-acceptable, music, what we listen to, and the arts. So culture is all of those things. And it says this, no matter what your culture, one thing is certain, it will change. Church is different here. I've only been here for a few years, but church is different than it was when my family and I first arrived. From 2008 to now, about 13 years, it is different, it's changed. Culture changes. And if we try to hold on to things, certain things, then we can be guilty of perpetrating these myths within the church, within our belief system, that we try to put on other people or the next generation. So my belief that maybe holes in jeans or dyed hair or things like that are a sign of rebellion. Is that true? Well, no, not really. I think when cul or culture transitions, there is that element that, that enters in. But people who are born into that culture, they don't look at it as rebellious. That's just the culture they're growing up in. They're not using it as an excuse to exercise their own will. That's the age in which they're growing up. And so what may be offensive or I've got to work through some issues in my life, for somebody who's grown up in it, who was birthed into it, it's a non-issue. And I cannot force my belief system on that or else I'm guilty really of perpetrating myths because I can't find anywhere in the Bible where there's an issue with long hair, short hair, um, you know, clothing styles. If that was an issue, you could go all across this globe and you could make issues with every culture that exists. Because we, we're different everywhere. We dress differently. We eat different foods. We listen to different musics. And we may not embrace it, but that doesn't mean it's wrong or bad. That just means it's different. And if they're Christians, by God, they're a part of the kingdom of God. They're our brothers, they're our sisters, and we better learn how to get over things that make us maybe want to criticize and see the bigger picture. Because otherwise it goes back to narcissism. I don't like that. I feel uncomfortable when I see that. And we put that on others. Do you know the person that you need to be concerned with really is you, but not how good you are, but really how much you need to change. I remember when I went through marriage counseling with my wife, one of the things that was said is, um, you know, when you're coming into this relationship of marriage, you know, there's, there's a philosophy that says, well, I'll bring 50% into the marriage 
and my spouse will bring 50%, and together it's 100%, and that's what makes us one. But you know what? That's not true. Because everybody, both parties, have to bring 100%. And if there is an issue in the relationship, it's up to me to look at me and say, how can I change it? Not to look at my wife and say, you need to change to accommodate me. And it goes both ways. Sometimes we put issues in the relationship on the other person. But you know what? If it's an issue in your heart, then you got to deal with it. You can't just put that off on somebody else and say it's their problem. No, it's your problem. Take responsibility. Make a change and you'll see how much stronger you come together as a couple. And truly what God intended for you to become one, it does happen. Proverbs says this, iron sharpens iron. And wherever there's more than one person, there's going to be conflict and confrontation. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you mature enough to walk through it and to become stronger from it? Because if you run from it, nothing in your life will change. If you run from it, again, it's narcissism. It's about you. I don't want to change. They got to do it. Matthew 16, verse 25 from The Voice says this, For if you choose self-sacrifice and lose your lives for my glory, you will continually discover true life. But if you choose to keep your lives for yourselves, you will forfeit even what you try to keep. Out of the Passion, it says this, for even if you were to gain all the wealth and power of this world with everything it could offer you at the cost of your own life, what good would it be? And what could be more valuable to you than your own soul? Are you more valuable than the salvation that was purchased for you by your Savior Jesus Christ? What price do you put on your salvation? Don't know where the verse is found, but there is a verse in the Bible that talks about that we have been crucified with Christ. That we have been bought with a price. That we are no longer our own. And so even within the church, we have to get over this culture in which we tend to exalt ourselves. Because the church and the culture within the community that's there is never about what's best for me. It's about what's best for us. And even as a body, when you make those decisions, they will cost you something. For instance, if it's good for your physical body to exercise, it's going to cost you something. Because you're going to have to make a decision to do it first. But the decision isn't enough because then you have to do it. 
And you know what? I've been exercising. I, I enjoy it. I find it very... I would use, uh, it helps me get rid of some of the negative energy, the stress that builds up over a day. But you know what? Almost every time that I go to do it, I've still got to work through the issue like I really don't feel like doing this. I'm tired. I don't want to. But when I do it, I have never looked back and regretted it. I've never said, oh man, what a waste of time. I have always always been thankful that I made the decision to inconvenience myself to push my body to a place it didn't want to go and be tired sweat and all of those things because I felt better after so the soul was not my friend in that sense it wasn't helping me do it um, there was a battle and so you know, we've got to be willing to understand that there will be a battle and that there will be a cost to it because it'll inconvenience you. It'll take your time. It'll take your money. You join a gym, it takes your money. It takes your time. It takes your commitment. But what are the end results? You know, they did a study and they said people who run, you know, they spend all their time running and they probably run, you know, I read, used to get Runner's World and, uh, there was a guy in there, and I think it was since about 1967 or 68, he'd never missed a day of running in his life. Every day he went out and ran. Didn't matter the weather, didn't matter the conditions, didn't matter how he felt, but he kept the record, and every day he ran. So he spends, I don't know how long he'll live, I don't know how long I'll live or you'll live, but so you exercise, so you commit yourself to something, and you spend... You spend 10 years out of your life running. So you add up the time. And, uh, you know, maybe not 10 years, maybe five years. And you think, five years of my life running? Like, like if I did it all at once, like, that would just be so crazy. Like, how could I spend that much time? But you know what? What's the alternative? Because if it's given you a quality of life, if it's given you something that you would not have without it, then that's a price worth paying. That's an inconvenience worth having. And to follow God is not convenient, I'll tell you. If you haven't figured that out, <laughs> I have, and I know it's never convenient. Or very seldom is it convenient. But it is always worthwhile. It is invaluable. And it pays eternal dividends. The writer of Psalms 119, there's quite a few verses in there, but uh, I'm just going to read a few of them. So this really is an individual who has determined to set self aside and embrace something higher. I find more joy, in verse 14, I find more joy in following what you tell me to do than in chasing after all the wealth of the world. Wow. Wow. I find more joy in following what you tell me to do than in chasing after all the wealth of the world. Verse 31, Lord, don't allow me to make a mess of my life. You know, you pray a prayer like that. And it's, it's funny because sometimes, you know, I pray, God, use me, take me. And it's, you know, pray it from a sincere heart. 
But then something happens in your life where it's so inconvenient and God just interrupts everything. And it's like, God, why? I don't want to. This is not good timing for me. But what did I pray? God, use me. And then he decides to use me and I get like all upset. So be careful what you pray for. Because God is one of those who will take you at your word. And he's not concerned about your emotional um, upsetness. Do you know David even ranted and raved at God? Which I find very good. Because to me that's real. You know. You know, God can take your ranting and your raving. Because he knows it's going on anyways. So you can't hide anything from him. And you know, once you get it out there, then it can actually be dealt with. You actually give God permission to deal with it. But if you keep it buried deep inside, and say, no, I'm not saying nothing. Nothing. I'll do this, but I'll not like doing it, but I'll do it. So then we get into the whole thing of works. Okay, God, I'll do it, but I'm not going to enjoy it. Well, Kind of like Adam said about the giving. <laughs> there should be some joy in what you're doing. And, uh, you know, that's what God wants. Oh boy. Um, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. Paul says this. I became weak to the weak to win the weak. I have adapted to the culture of every place I have gone so that I could more easily win people to Christ. For Paul, it wasn't about himself. It was about the places that God took him. And he made a decision. He said, I become weak to the weak, to win the weak. So he understood the culture, and he understood when he transitioned from one culture to another. And he didn't look to be the strong guy in that culture. He looked to be a guy in that culture that could be related to. So Paul was able to, in every situation, adapt himself so that he could more easily win people to Christ. And you know, that's the authentic you. That's what God wants. The authentic you can adapt to wherever God calls you, to whoever God calls you to. Okay, I'm going to read one more passage and make a couple comments and then we will wrap it. So, John. John 21. You know what? I'm just going to read a quick verse from Luke 22 first. You don't have to turn there. But um, it's Luke 22. This is where they're actually having communion. Jesus has, this is the first communion. 
So Jesus is with his disciples. He's, this is the Last Supper. Um, he's sharing his heart with them. And at that time, he also tells that one of them at the table will actually be the one who betrays. So in verse 23, after Jesus had said this, the disciples questioned among themselves which one of them was about to do this. So they were concerned and they started talking like, who's go- are you going to do that? Like, who would do this to our Savior, our Lord? Verse 24 is amazing. Absolutely amazing. This is what verse 24 says. The disciples bickered over which one would be considered the greatest in the kingdom. Verse 23, they're concerned about who's going to betray their Lord. Verse 24, they're concerned about who's going to have the position of greatest significance in the kingdom. Like, how does that happen? Jesus said this to Peter at the um, verse 28 here. So I'd never seen this before. Actually, it's not verse 28, it's 31, 32. And then I'm going to read from John. Peter, my dear friend, listen to what I'm about to tell you. Satan has demanded to come and sift you like wheat and test your faith. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that you would stay faithful to me no matter what comes. Then he says this, remember this. After you have turned back to me and have been restored, make it your mission in life to strengthen the faith of your brothers. And I'd never seen that before because Jesus was actually telling Peter, he says, remember this, after you have been turned back to me and restored. Because Peter's next statement is like, I'm ready to stand with you to the very end. So let's go to John 21. And the title of this portion of scripture is called Jesus Restores Peter. So this is exactly what Jesus had prophesied to Peter. After they had breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do burn with love. Do you burn with love for me more than these? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I have great affection for you. Then take care of my lambs, Jesus said. Jesus repeated his question the second time. Simon, son of John, do you burn with love for me? Peter answered, yes, my Lord, you know that I have great affection for you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Then Jesus asked him again, Peter, son of John, do you have great affection for me? And Peter was saddened, it says. I would imagine he was frustrated a little bit. Like, I've already told you, Jesus. Um, was saddened by being asked this a third time and said, my Lord, you know everything. You know that I burn with love for you. Jesus replied, then feed my lambs. Peter, listen. So, and I won't go into that part. There's, so anyways, what, what Jesus had done for Peter, Peter was very, he proudly admitted that he would never forsake Jesus, even to the very end. No, I'm with you to the end, Jesus. I can do it. But Jesus had prophesied that there was going to be an issue and that Peter would have to be restored. And then he said, remember this, when you are restored, then after that, take care of those that I will entrust to you. And then here for the restoration process, you know, 
Peter denied Jesus three times, and then Jesus asked him three times if he loved him. Now, Jesus gave him some instruction because Jesus didn't just ask him if he loved him, and Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus said, good. That wasn't his assignment. So just like coming to church, God or Jesus is not just happy or content if we say we love him. Then he's got something else to say to us, just like he says to Peter here. Because what he says next is, then feed my sheep. Take care of those that I bring under your influence. It's never just about, yes, I love you, Lord, because then it's you. But it's about the people that God has assigned to you. Because every one of us has a calling, and that calling is connected to people. It's not connected to things. It's connected to people because they are the living stones which God is using to build a sacred dwelling for himself. We are all living stones. So after Peter affirms this, and he says, yes, I do love you, and Jesus says, okay, take care of my sheep. Then, guess what Peter does? <laughs> he goes on and he makes an observation here. Verse 20, Then Peter turned, and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Sounds kind of... Because <laughs> John is writing this. But again, we are all the ones that Jesus loves. It's not just John. But Peter turns. And you know what? John kind of gets under Peter's skin because there's a little bit of competition here. So Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was a disciple who sat close to Jesus at the Last Supper and had asked, Lord, who is the one that is going to betray you? So when Peter saw him, he asked Jesus, what's going to happen to him? Because Jesus had just prophesied to Peter that Peter was going to die. He was going to be crucified for, for Jesus. So Peter sees John and he wants to know, well, Lord, what's going to happen to him? If I got to die, what's going to happen to him? Jesus replied, if I decide to let him live until I return, what concern is that of yours? You must still keep on following me. So whatever I'm doing, has nothing to do with whatever you're doing because I've still got to keep on following him. You've still got to keep on following him. We all have to keep on following him. And so I, if I look at somebody else and say, well, what about them? They got a title. They got a position. I want to be in the ministry. I want to do this. I want to do that. Well, what is it to you what Jesus decides with somebody else? He's the head. We're the body. So, you must still keep on following me. And when you can do that, you will never have an issue with narcissism. And you will be authentically you because Jesus will be guiding and directing you into the fullness of what he's called you to do. In the voice, there's comments that are made. And I'll conclude with this. The disciples all learn on this day 
that no matter what someone has done, the master desires that the miracle of forgiveness restores that person to whom God made them to be and called them to the purpose. I'll read it again. I kind of paraphrased it. The disciples all learned on this day. So this is a day that I just read out of John 21. The disciples all learn on this day that no matter what someone may have done, Peter denied him three times. The master desires the miracle of forgiveness to restore that person to be whom he made and called him or her to be. So God made you and he called you to be something. That is being authentically you. And that is what we are discovering. And I believe when we discover the fullness, then we transition. So, because so far as I know, I've, I'm on in a years, a few years, and I'm still discovering who I am. So it's not a journey that's over in a day or a week. It will last your entire life. And... Uh, that's the beauty of God. His mercies are new every day and what he can show you about yourself and your calling, they also are new every day. And it's, it's awesome. God is so good. Thank you for listening and trust that you have an awesome day and as we head towards Easter next Sunday, um, just such an awesome time of celebration and remembrance in terms of what our Lord Jesus Christ actually did for us. He didn't just come and speak to us but he actually lived what he spoke. There was that congruence, and that is, that is awesome. Thank you. Adam? For more information about Embassy Church, visit our website at embassychurch.ca.